Tēnā koutou katoa no mai piki mai ki te pūtahi ko Kingi Gilbert tōku ingoa he uria hau no Tainui Tiaroa a me toko Maruaka. Ko cannabis te take i tēnei hōtaka, we want to talk about some of the issues to do with the cannabis referendum and legalising marijuana. Kia ora whānau, we're here with two experts. Associate Professor Chris Wilkins is the leader of the drug research team at Sean Whāriki Research Centre, College of Health, Massey University. Over the past 20 years, Chris has studied methamphetamine, cannabis, legal highs, ecstasy, and non-medicinal use of pharmaceuticals. Tēnā koe, Chris. Welcome to Te Pūtahi. Kia ora, Ki. Good to We're be also, here. Oh, you're welcome. We're back also with uh, Dr. Mark, Martha Reichert, a Senior Research Officer at the Shuren Whāriki Research Centre at Massey University. So Marta originally comes from uh, Poland, and she studied uh, the reform and referendum in Jamaica, and was based in Portugal, Lisbon, at the European Union, what was it? Monitoring Center for Drugs and Drug Addiction. <laughs> Thank you so much, Marta. Tenaku, welcome back. Kia ora anō. Kia ora. Thanks for having me again. Thank you. So uh, this is our second part uh, to Putahi episode on the cannabis uh, reform and referendum. I think it's really important in this episode to talk about some of the data and research that people may be referring to uh, when they go to make a decision about um, how they may vote in the referendum. So uh, last time we talked about uh, some of the uh, highly regulated forms of um, medicinal marijuana products, but the reform has a much wider scope. So I was wondering if you could both maybe just outline for some of our viewers uh, and listeners uh, what's it, what's really happening with the referendum and what are kind of some of the things that people will need to be uh, considering in their brain when they go to um, vote in the referendum. So Chris, we'll start with you this time. Uh, thanks, Kenny. Um, well, I think the first thing to keep in mind is the referendums about recreational use. So um, it's separate from the medicinal uh, cannabis reforms. So this is um, the use of cannabis for recreational use. Uh, it, it allows people to grow cannabis themselves, so up to two plants um, individually and four plants for a household. But it also establishes uh, a commercial sector. So that's commercial production of cannabis, um, retail outlets as well and places where people can go to smoke cannabis um, in, in a private setting. Um, so I guess the things to keep in mind are there's, there's been no advertising um, for cannabis products. Um, there'll be strict um, controls over the advertising and promotion. There'll be a tax on cannabis products. And initially the products will be limited to cannabis plant only. Uh, there are provisions for edibles and concentrates, but that won't initially um, be approved. Um, and there'll be no, uh, oh, the, the use of cannabis will still be illegal in public places. And uh, there'll be no importation of cannabis. Okay. And some of the, so the cannabis will be produced, uh, will be produced under license. Um, the government will set the cap on how much in total cannabis will be available. And some of that cannabis can be produced by, um, by not-for-profits and, and can be sold by not-for-profits as well. 
Yeah, maybe let's contextualize it in the global reforms and what happened overseas. So some of some people in the audience might be aware a number of other countries have legalized cannabis for recreational use already. Some of these early reforms happened. Um, first first jurisdiction was 2013 and that was Colorado. So some a number of United States in the America have legalized, have gone through this reform process. It's, it's all happened relatively recently. So as I said, 2013 was that first reform until the shops actually opened was 2014. So the most um, number of years that these reforms really have been in place is maybe five, five to six years. So the evidence that we have so far is a bit limited. So these um, reforms in the US um, are quite commercial, so they're most similar to what we know here in New Zealand from alcohol regime. They're quite commercial. Um, there are many stores, there, there, there's advertising there. We won't hopefully see this here, at least our legislation is much stricter by design and it's, um, it's more similar to the Canadian approach. A couple of years ago, Canada also legalized um, use of cannabis for recreational use, and our approach is, I'd say, most similar to that. So it's stricter and, by design, more public health-oriented. So as Chris mentioned, no advertising, limits on potency. Even, even the government will have the ability to um, control the amount of, cannabis actually on the market because they will set the caps on the production. So it's quite government controlled by design. How do you think the government will enforce those caps if people are able to grow it in their garden? So if I'm going to start a garden, put some plants in my garden and my neighbor is then, how is the supply limited by the government in that scenario? Sure, so the caps would only apply to the commercial side of the market, so what is sold in the licensed stores. So everyone who, the, the company that wants to produce cannabis and sell it on the market, they need to apply for a license and they will be only allowed to grow a specific um, you know, number of plants and then sell that to the wholesaler and then retailer. So, so that's how it's supposed to be controlled. Obviously, like in any other regulated product, there would be punishment if they don't comply with their allowances, right? Mm. And there would be fines. Now, the, 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 the social sharing, the part that everyone would be allowed to grow two plants at home and also if you share a flat with many people, you can uh, grow up to four plants at a household. Um, now that's separate from that because that's only cannabis for your own personal use. So you can grow it, these two plants, and use it yourself. Um, and you can share it with friends. You cannot receive any money for that. My family sits quite broad on the spectrum. So I have uh, some of the older generation who uh, really are afraid of cannabis, very scared have a very negative perception of it. And then we have others in my family who are very open, very comfortable with it. And they've seemed to have this experience where they've encountered different types of responses to people on it. And when people are, are high, they may change their state. So how do you think um, this may be managed by the government or the uh, reform will address some of those social issues which are 
uh, present already, particularly between the generations. So the older, um, unfamiliar generation who uh, see people high, are concerned about their behavior, um, associated with accidents and, you know, drug driving and behavior things. And then uh, people who are quite normalized, it's normalized in their life. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? The research shows the greatest risks, uh, the, the health and social impacts and developmental impacts of cannabis use occur at a very young ages. So it's what we call early onset. So when you start using uh, cannabis very early age in your early teens mm. or even younger, and that affects things like education, also brain development and your likelihood mm. to be, become drug dependent and have um, working problems later on. So um, that's not all the harm of cannabis, but that, that's one of the greatest risks. So what the government is saying is, well, at the moment, um, there's, it's hard to restrict use of cannabis to those age groups, to those, but what they're proposing is by legalizing cannabis for adults, so, mm. and it's restricted to only to people 20 years and older, so we should have said that, that the age limit will be 20, um, different from alcohol, which is, of course, 18. Mm. But um, the government's argument is by allowing adult use, they will then focus on preventing that early onset use and use by younger people who are more susceptible to, to brain development or problems from cannabis use and cannabis mm. dependency. So on one hand, I guess the legislation gives us the opportunity to um, get control over that. Of course, it's very difficult to actually make sure that no one below the age of 20 will access cannabis, right? This probably will happen from time to time, like, mm -hmm. like, like kids can access alcohol despite the legal um, requirements, right? But mm. this is an opportunity to get it under control. And so legalization gives us the opportunity to, um, to control the market. And for example, um, one of these control is in legal age of purchase. Another very important control is the quality of the cannabis that mm. you can buy and the potency of cannabis that you can yeah. buy. So how strong is cannabis? So if you use stronger cannabis, especially if you start early in your life that there are these risks that Chris mentioned to your health now if we set the potency limits lower than they are on the black market that potentially can have some positive implications for health yeah yeah and, and if, if you look at the I mean one of the big issues that has been investigated with the legalization of cannabis in the US is is that question you know how does it impact youth use and the results have been fairly mixed to date. So some, some jurisdictions have seen a little, a small increase in youth use, and some have had a small decrease in youth use, and some mm. hasn't um, affected at all. So um, that's obviously a really um, important question for everyone. But the, the, the problem is that even in the US, um, it's too early to tell. So, so basically it takes time for the legalization to, to come into the community and people to adapt to the new legal availability and the new legal status. But, but clearly, the, the, one of the government's aim with this legislation is actually to reduce availability of cannabis to young people. Awesome. So the, you were saying there were different states, or was that the difference between Canada and the US? Yeah, that, was, there, there, was, there was different states, but, it, but it's... Um, um, so, so Washington, I think, had a um, had a small 
um, decrease and Colorado had a small increase in youth use. But, but as I said, it's really early days and it's, it's also hard to compare different states because they have different kind of retail arrangements about how cannabis can be sold and, and things like that. But generally in this really initial stage, the findings seem to be mm. there hasn't been a really big increase in youth use following legalization. And one of the explanations for that is that it, you know, it's no longer as cool because you know, it's legal and, and your parents and your older siblings are using it. So it hasn't got that kind of um, image anymore. Interesting. One of the one of the important thing also to keep in mind is that in some of these jurisdiction access to cannabis was already quite broad because they've implemented quite um, liberal medicinal cannabis regimes before that. So you know, in some uh, U.S. states, for example, California, it it's it's been relatively easy to access legally cannabis for medicinal use which in those states you can actually access cannabis for smoking uh for medicinal use so you know um these are the things that we need to consider when we look at that research and how that might translate to to new zealand so it's just it's just difficult to say what we'll see what we'll see in the long term I was interested in the alcohol system. So when you buy a bottle of alcohol, it has a percentage. So you know the potency of that particular drink. And then there's also the standards measure, like it gives you an indicator of how many drinks you can have. Is there, to your knowledge, development of a similar potency measure system with regards to cannabis? At the moment, what the government is proposing is there's, there's three types of cannabis, cannabis plant, uh, what we call concentrates is like on oil and edibles, which you'd put in food or cookies or whatever. Um, all those can be covered in the proposal, but um, at the moment they're saying they will initially only license cannabis plant and they'll limit the potency of cannabis plant to 15% THC, which is, is kind of not the highest THC you could get. Um, I, I think potency makes a difference. So in terms of... Um, negative health outcomes, um, particularly mental health and psychosis, um, and also at the early age. But, um, you know, people, even when you have a potency cap, sometimes it doesn't limit the amount of THC people can take because they just take more of a lower potency um, product. So, like, if you compare spirits and wines, you know, you can either drink a little bit of spirits or a whole lot of beer and you get the same amount of alcohol. So that, that's just one factor to keep in mind. Um, yeah, I think we've covered potency. It's something that um, um, that we'll have to figure out along the way. So at the moment, the legislation says 15% potency. Now, the, the, if the legislation passes, if the referendum is positive, the, the, the new government agency, which will be called Cannabis Regulatory Authority, they will have the power to actually adjust that. Uh, which is good because we have to be flexible and see how what what how it develops, what actually happens on the ground, um, so they can then lower the potency or increase the potency. Hopefully not, mm. but um, one of the difficulties in introducing this legal cannabis market is how and to what extent they will be able to reduce the black market supply. 
Mm. So, so one of the aims of the regime is to eliminate the black market, right? We want to get rid of that and only make people, if they want to use cannabis, they go to the store and they buy the regulated safe product where they know the potency, they know that there were no pesticides used. But evidence from overseas shows that at least in the short term, the black market is going to stay with us. It will be reduced, but it will stay with us. And this is another challenge that we will have to manage. Mm. One of the interesting things is the black market is there's no ability to monitor the potency of yes. anything coming out of that. So I can mm. see the, uh, the benefits of having a regulation system, then you could probably assume that the black market would be selling anything that falls out of that kind of scope and therefore would be very dangerous. Perhaps. Yeah, well, yeah uh, this is unfortunate. One of the trade-offs is that, I mean, you're completely right that, that the products that aren't available in the legal market, if there's demand for them, they would remain in the black market. And the other complication is, as I said, because the age limit is 20, that means no matter what happens with the referendum, everyone up to 20 is still going to, if they're going to use cannabis, going to use it illegally and purchase illegally. The, the other thing I'd say about that potency um, issue is it's actually a bit more complicated than it sounds. So it's not just about THC, it's about, um, because the cannabis plant is made up of hundreds of different compounds. So THC is just the one compound that we most associate with getting high. But there's another compound called CBD, which is an, kind of an antipsychotic and calms you down. So one of the issues that is yet to be worked out is a lot of people say it's the ratio of THC to CBD that actually produces the risk of, say, like mental illness. So if you've got a, if you've got a high levels of CBD in your cannabis, having high levels of THC is not such a problem. So that's another issue that the regulators would have to work through in the legal market. But potentially, if, if they could arrive at a good ratio of CBD to THC, you could end up with safer cannabis than you'd get in the black market that was breeding basically just THC. Mm. From your position as researchers, do you feel the, what, the data that you've seen come across your desk that, that is relatively stable and mature, the, um, the analysis of the CBD and THC, or is there still quite a lot of extra uh, uh, research funding that is required and research to go into how uh, hybrid stra you know, strains and, and the mix? What, what's your feelings? Well, I mean, that part of research is pretty clear that, you know, the higher THC you, you use, the more risks there are, especially if you start younger. And the CBD, the cannabidiol um, as compound of cannabis has antipsychotic uh, properties. So if you can get um, higher CBD products, which are, uh, CBD is a non-psychoactive component. So in some countries in Europe, CBD, you can even buy over the counter the counter it's like a wellness product it's what we talked last week uh, with Manu from Hikurangi Enterprise they argue that CBD could be sold as a like vitamin C mm -hmm. and in some countries that happens and um, so so you know that part of research I think is pretty clear that 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 we need to look at that balance THC CBD what do you think Chris yeah, well, I think this potentially could be one of the advantages that come out of the, either both the legal medicinal industry and also legal recreational, if we get it, that we'll do a lot more testing. So we'll, we'll know a bit more about 
what the ratio is. We'll also might do research about the other compounds in cannabis. So you asked about what's the situation now. Well, I, well, because we've got a black market, you know, there's surprisingly very little data on the TH level, THC level of cannabis in New Zealand because there's no incentive to collect that data. So the police don't really need to find out how much THC is in cannabis because, you know, cannabis is illegal and all they have to do is identify the cannabis. So, so really, potentially, that could be an advantage of that we find out a little bit more about what what's the ratio in New Zealand and the strains and what people are producing at home and perhaps we'd come up with test kits that would help people cultivate safer, safer varieties. So what happens sometimes consumers buy things from the black market and they are told this is a low THC strain, high CBD, but what happens they get the, the, the other way around, they may have some adverse effects. Some people don't want to get very high on cannabis, right? And then they just, they just need to wait it off. It's not going to kill them, right? But they need to wait it off. What I've heard from some cannabis consumers, cannabis users from the black market is if that happens, then they do have some kind of um, CBD oil and they can consume CBD oil to kind of counter effects of the of the THC that they intentionally ingested, right? But so that's the, that's the advantage of a regulated market that they don't need to guess what they're taking and just kind of um, um, go with what, what, what they get from the black market, but they have a clear indication of what they're actually buying. Thinking about some of the uh, komatua, some of our older generation who have not tried it, they've smelt it, they've been around it. Um, their concerns may be that if this referendum uh, is successful to vote in favour of legalisation, um, that it might see a big change in society. What, what would your comments be to that? Um, well, I, I think it's, it's really um, good to be cautious and um, th that's one of the reasons why we've been trying to push that if we do legalise cannabis, it has to be a very controlled, restricted market. So there are some clear advantages about legalising cannabis in terms of um, avoiding arrests and convictions and Maori have been targeted in drug enforcement and, you know, that, that's really unfair and it affects people's lives you know, over the course of their life that they get a conviction. So there's a, there's a real advantage there. Um, but the, the rest of the uh, advantages and disadvantages are largely, you know, unknown. So it will depend about what kind of regulatory regime we get. But yeah, I think it's, it's um, important to be really cautious about the potential health and social risks. Um, but the other way of looking at this is it's, we're not really comparing no cannabis use under prohibition with you know, more cannabis use under legalization because we already have a lot of cannabis use under prohibition. And, um, and that is, you can argue that's concentrated in young people and people with lots of problems. So it's really just more of a, a, an argument about the level of control you want to do over the, the cannabis use you've already got. I guess one of the biggest argument here is that yes if we legalize that there's definitely criminal justice benefits so we'll get rid of many convictions that people get for cannabis offenses right so that there's no um there's no doubt about it so this is one argument for but uh, the other arguments i guess they depend on how well the the framework that we have which is mm. i'd argue 
quite a good framework. It's quite a public health oriented legislation. We'd like to see some elements improved, but it's generally um, public health oriented. Um, how well this is actually translated into practice on the ground? You know, how well do we actually make sure that this potency limits what what the producer says on the package actually is in the product? Um, how do we make sure that uh, youth actually doesn't have access to these black market products and so on? So it's all about um, how much do we trust that this can be executed well? How is it enforced in other places where they have legalized? So, or is enforcement the right word? How is it regulated? Is there a separate uh, agents that go around and Look, do it's random regulate, spot checks? Or it, yes, police? yes, is it's it? regulated like we regulate alcohol. There's okay. um, controlled purchase operations. So the police send someone who looks who looks um, on the verge of the legal age and they check if, if, if they sell them cannabis or not. So it's how we regulate alcohol. Um, yeah, and there are these systems in place. Um, but as we said, it, it, it is quite difficult, particularly with regards to potency because it, it's a complex matter. But it's something that um, other countries have struggled with. In the beginning, it's not going to be that easy. But after some time, I guess, um, you know, the governments learn how to how to monitor it better. One thing I'd just like to say about how this this could work for Mari is we think we the two things we think are really important for Mari is their involvement, um, them allowed to be involved in the actual industry itself. So in terms of production and cultivation, that could be a, a pathway to economic development and employment for even people that were previously in the black market. Also, Māori could be really um, involved in terms of the retail sale and what we call not-for-profit or for-benefit companies. So, so it could be, and it's similar to like an iwi trust kind of model where it's the community that sells and so they're responsible to the community in itself and some of the money from the sale of that cannabis goes back to the community say to fund like sports or cultural events so a bit like the gambling trust that some of the listeners might be um, familiar with but and and that is actually in the bill but we were what we're saying is we think we just need a bit more um, be more precise about to what extent will Māori have control over the sale of cannabis in their, their areas and in their neighbourhoods? And, and the other aspect to that is the level that your, um, the local government will be able to have a say over outlet policy. So with alcohol, you you know you're, you're probably aware that the the local council decides where an alcohol outlet is and its hours of trading and things like that. Under this bill, all that's done centrally from Wellington. So that was a little bit of a red flag for us. We thought that it was really important that local uh, communities, Maori communities, mm -hmm. had a say about you know how many outlets are going to be and how long they're going to be open for, mm -hmm. um, and, and and where they can trade in terms of the location, how close they are to marae or to, to mm -hmm. churches and things like that. And I think that needs to be developed more in the legislation because uh, when people get a real input into that kind of that kind of situation they have more control over um, the mm. sale of cannabis in their community because a bit like alcohol and um, gaming machines and gambling we don't want to see a situation where you know poorer communities deprived communities have you know so much more outlets of fast food outlets um, TABs and alcohol outlets just because 
they don't have that strong say about what happens in their community. Mm, that's really interesting for Hokainga who live in the rural areas or you know, who may be located on their marae or on their ancestral whenua and particularly for our whanau there's you know they have an abundance of soil and trees and, and actually quite good gardeners so I imagine just personally speaking their needs will be fulfilled by a whanau collective system. Yeah. Um, there will be uh, and we met last week Manu, Kerry obviously and Hukirangi Enterprises who are taking a very commercial edge to it and you know putting a, a monetary value around it and a, a jobs uh, metric and you know a whole lot of other social indicators so i think there's quite a broad spectrum of our uh, use i from our what i know is that our um you know just some of the personalities in our fund it would probably be more sharing from your personal uh two you can have two plants or four if you're in a, a fan mm -hmm. thing so i see that as being actually relatively uh i'd say that would be quite a, a large chunk of people um mm -hmm. and then if you're in a family who doesn't have or whanau who doesn't have a grower then you would turn to obviously the next best option which would be a commercial um outlet and if you're maori you're probably more likely to try you know word of mouth who know <laughs> you know the simple <laughs> it's all marketing and it's all business after that so um, yeah, I uh, was interesting last week because Manu was very much focused on the medicinal end, mm -hmm. right? And an export product. Um, that was where the business growth and drive, uh, the, the drive lay was in the export of it. Um, but it sounds like with the uh, referendum making it uh, the 20, the legal age, um, and you can have your own and you can grow to sell that there might be another a smaller local market uh, for local growers. Is that, have I, have I got that correct or incorrect? Is it still? Um, well, the one thing that I guess we have to um, differentiate is that technically, internationally, you can't yet engage in export of recreational cannabis because there are United Nations conventions which prohibit the, uh, the, the sale and uh, supply, and that would be considered trafficking of cannabis. Now, there are exemptions for medicinal use, and that's why the companies can do trade of medicinal cannabis internationally. So that's why Manu uh, mentioned that. Um, now, but that doesn't mean that we won't have any international players potentially coming here and investing in our recreational market because that, that's been happening. They can invest, maybe they won't be able, we, we won't be able to ship cannabis overseas, but, but you know, um, so this is very interesting about that commercial to what extent will we end up with a commercial market that's something mm. uh, from public health perspective that we are interested in we know that the more commercial it is the more likely we are able to see the industry pushing for more sales for targeting users who will be using more and that can have potential negative consequences for health um, now, the, under this legislation, by design, it's, it's, it, it aims to limit that commercial um, influences. So, for example, all advertising is prohibited. Of course, you can prohibit advertising in law and you won't see big billboards advertising cannabis. But, you know, there's social media, there's clever ways, so some of it will be probably there. But maybe not as much as we see from alcohol now there's also um 
under the under this law there's there's a limit on how big these kind of, uh, these companies can be because under this um limits on how much cannabis will be on the market that the regulatory authority will set uh, it says in the law that no no company will be able to produce more than 20 percent of that share so hopefully we won't see one company which will you know focus production and produce 80 percent and will be just you know monopoly on that um, but to what extent that will be uh, translated on the ground and to what extent this um, commercial market or non-commercial market will stay with us over the years? In 20 years, we don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, I think that that's right. I mean, to us, this is one of the really important issues. So if it was just a non-commercial market where people largely grew their own, there was social sharing and some combination of cannabis and then freely giving it away, um, you know, we think that would actually be a pretty good market. But the more we have a commercial operator that's interested in expanding the market and is focused on profit and there's retail outlets and there's advertising and the more the industry gets power politically, the more likely you're going to have um, health problems. So, um, and it's getting the balance right. And so there's provision for those kinds of arrangements, the not-for-profit, the non-commercial within the bill. But I think it would be good if the government was just a bit clear about how that would work in practice. So um, would Maori communities be able to say, well, we just want uh, the non-commercial part and we're going to have a not-for-profit iwi trust that will sell and then the private operators aren't allowed to in our area? Or will commercial be able to be operate everywhere? Because, you know, it's a bit like the warehouse of cannabis. So even though you've got your, your iwi yeah. selling and also giving money back to the community. If you've got this low price warehouse model that's competing, people will tend to go to the warehouse model. So um, that's one of the real risks. And over time, the industry, as you see with alcohol, really gets um, into the decision making and into the politicians' heads and tries to reduce regulation because they make more money, right? So, um, you know, that's one of the real risks in the medium and long term. Yeah, it's a very interesting scenario because you have essentially right now a decentralized model with no regulation. There's still supply and there's still demand, right? So there's, but none of that can be regulated and obviously none of that can be taxed. The future model is um, trust us, the government will centralize the regulation of it. There's still supply and there's still demand, but the supply now is going to be legal. So to, con to conform with this for safety and you know for the health of society you must do this and so it's kind of like uh shifting you know essentially just shifting forces right or shifting the management of it and that like you said projecting ahead warehouse model lower prices um bulk production you know pricing dynamics and market is that's where i think this gets very very interesting um and i'm curious about the research and data that you know, other countries that are five or six years down the track, how it's happened there, um, how are the markets in Canada and um, in the US? Yeah, very, very interesting. There, there's one more interesting country and it's Uruguay, in South America, Uruguay. So they have more of a, 
um, government-controlled model in that um, it's, it's, it's government who, who really controls everything very, very strictly, much more than, than, than even here it's planned. Um, that they even control the price um, very, very um, strictly. And it's, um, it's probably something that we would like to uh, see here from public health perspective. Chris, do you want to uh, expand on that Uruguay model? There's three ways that you can access uh, cannabis in Uruguay. Yeah, so the three ways in Uruguay are growing your own, which we'll have in the bill. Yeah. But another form is what they call uh, cannabis social clubs. So yeah. it's just one step above growing your own. It's, a, it's the, the idea that we all get an allocation of, say, 14 grams that we can have per day. And instead of growing our own, we might allocate or assign someone in the community to grow on our behalf. And actually, I think this model works quite well for Maori. So there would be somebody in the community who's particularly good at growing cannabis, and they would grow cannabis for everyone in that, that small community. And then you just divide out the crop at the end. There'd be no necessarily any commercial transaction apart from covering the costs of that one person to produce the cannabis for everyone in the social club model. And then in Uruguay, the third way is they just have limited sales from pharmacies. And yeah, that, so and, it's recreational cannabis that they buy yeah. from pharmacies. Yeah, and the other thing they require is that you register as a user, and that means that they can actually monitor how much cannabis you're using and how much you're purchasing. So it's slightly more um, controlled than what's been proposed here because, one, we don't have the social club model, and two, um, there's, the pharmacy is much more expanded, so the, what's proposed in New Zealand is a much more commercialised um, type of retail outlet um, approach. Mm. I want to draw a parallel to iPhones really quickly. A friend of mine works for Apple in Asia and he they deal with a huge amount of black market um, import of iPhones, desirable goods into other territories. Do you think that, simi that similar concept might happen here with cannabis? Uh, people may be importing, you know, other varieties from other well-stocked uh, markets of cannabis? Um, importing will be prohibited. So, so import of cannabis into New mm. Zealand would be prohibited under this legislation, like it is now, essentially, mm. of recreational cannabis. So hopefully we won't have um, any import. But what we've seen in some other jurisdictions, if it comes to importing, um, it's the types of cannabis that will be grown here in New Zealand. So, so the strain, cannabis strains, so the, the, you know, the chemical composition of cannabis strains, the balance of THC and CBD. So what we've seen overseas that the, it, there has been this shift towards um, the more potent strains and the, these strains that already popular in the US, right? Mm -hmm. And I guess what we would like to see is to preserve the, the, the strains that we have here in New Zealand, which may be a bit more balanced. Mm. Yeah, and I think controlling the black market is actually going to be a really big challenge for mm. this regime, particularly in rural areas, um, like you said, where there's a lot of um, small-scale cultivation of cannabis and people have been doing it for years and years. So um, I think there's going to be real challenges in terms of controlling that and also um, encouraging people who are getting their cannabis through that mode to go to the legal market because they say, well, why, why would I want to spend, you know, a higher price, pay a tax and I can just get it. So 
that's why we think social, cannabis social clubs could be one way to help those people tr transition. So um, they're not going to the commercial market and it's pretty similar to what they're doing, but perhaps you can give them kind of health advice and, and there can be some regulation over the top. But, and, but it's also a downside, you know, when we talked about that, that you know, legalizing cannabis will reduce arrests and convictions. Well, if, if, you, do, if you choose to just continue to small scale cannabis grow outside of the regime, you still can get arrested and convicted. Yeah. So, and, and again, as we said, all the people under 20 are still gonna potentially be arrested and conviction if they continue to use cannabis. So mm -hmm. I think the other side of this is we've got to decide, you know, when people do break the rules that, that we, we, we keep it civil penalties. So we don't go straight to criminal convictions and just reproduce the problems that we've got with prohibition. So, you know, there's a whole lot of ways you could intervene that don't involve, um, you know, arresting people and, and, and trying to convict them. You can use fines or education or, you know, just try and voluntarily get people to, to change their behavior. If the system really is just going to incarcerate, and I think the whole drive, you know, is really to lower incarceration rate from minor, minor offenses, right, which are not cause anybody any grievous harm or, you know, I think that's really important. And if it is operating this way, um, then an analysis and understanding of that should inform the development of the new regulations and the new systems, even though it's opaque, it's not easy to understand because it is a black market. But there's it's kind of there is enough out there to model the new scenario, mm -hmm. and I like the social club. First time I've heard it, um, and yeah. Uruguay was it? Yeah, it sounds like a yes. uh, sensible strategy to, you know, transition um, mm -hmm. people from a, a black, unknown, very unclear scenario about what's in it, how safe it is, you know, where it comes from, is it ethically made? You know, there's so many questions to a scenario where hey, we know there's transparency we can see through, okay, with a, you know, our best efforts, uh, where this comes from, how strong it is, and uh, res responsible use, I guess. Mm. Mm. Now, unfortunately, under the bill, there's no special provisions for the social clubs, so we won't be voting on that for cannabis social clubs, but there are these provisions for these tightly regulated but commercial market, and the social supply that you can share and grow your own. So these are these two main ways. And um, just to explain that if the referendum is positive, then the bill will have to go through the parliamentary process and there, there would be submissions from the public. So there, there's still a chance to uh, make some changes to that bill. I hope mm. positive. Gilda. Mm, well, thank you so much. It sounds like it's really a test of trust. Do, yep. do people trust the government to establish the correct entity and the correct regulations and systems that will improve the health, I guess, of everybody and as well provide some economic benefit? Uh, yeah. Thank you so much, you, uh, both of you, for very enlightening yeah. discussion. We went thank quite you. far and deep in some areas. <laughs> thank you. Yes, yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank Kiara. you. Yeah. Great to talk to you guys. Yeah. Kia ora. Well, that's us on Te Putahi for today. Hope you've learned a lot there, Fano, and we'll be back soon. Hey, Konara. Kia ora. Mm -hmm.